heaven was. My name is Tom McNabb, and the purpose of this podcast is to deploy the rich experience of coaches. There's no such thing that's better than the products, the fruits of experience. Those are the best possible fruits. And we'll bring to you a vast variety of knowledge covering a wide range of events. And no one could be more appropriate than Malcolm Arnold, whose career in coaching has spanned uh, uh, right from the 1960s into the present day. Now, uh, you're fortunate, Malcolm. You, you can't actually see me. I can see you. Oh, kind of, for God's sake. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, dear. You could have combed your hair before you saw I the did. I, came. You put me right back. <laughs> All right. <laughs> now, okay, let's get started. So, welcome, Malcolm. And, uh, and the first thing I really want to ask you is, what was the landscape you faced when you first arrived in athletics, first as an athlete and then as a coach? I really first started in athletics as a 12-year-old. I remember when my big brother, who's, what was he, six years older than me, took me down to the local track and joined the club, Winnington Park Recreation Club in Northwich Cheshire, uh, a grass track which appeared round about uh, May or June every year and disappeared in September. One of the first things I remember about it is taking part in technical uh, instruction with the pole vault. And I, I remember that really well because on one occasion I took off and went upside down and stayed there and landed on my head and pulled a hamstring, which was a pretty unique way to carry on. But basically, I was interested in athletics. For what reason, I don't know. It just appealed to me. I suppose I was reasonably good at it. First year at secondary school. I remember I had to cycle to the track every time I went there, which would have been a round trip of seven or eight miles. I had to get all the equipment out myself. That was about it, my first introduction into, into track and field. What was the, uh, the state of club athletics competition and, for that matter, school competition? What was the state of that at the time? Club competition was just the usual sports day where you could win, you know, a teapot or a, <laughs> or a set of um, crockery or, or, or a toaster or whatever. Uh, that was about the limit of, of club competition at that time. Uh, and that went on for quite a while. School-wise, uh, I think the competition was probably a downside better than it is nowadays. You would start the sort of regional schools things as soon as you got back out from school after the Easter holidays, building up through to national schools competition. It was thought of as the second biggest competition situation outside the Olympic Games. It, it was quite incredible, really. I think the world of athletics came alight then because... Like you, I was a, something of a triple jumper and I came fifth in the English schools on uh, two consecutive years, um, which really started me going in, if you like, proper athletics. Yeah. And what was the position like in terms of uh, outdoor tracks and indoor training facilities, Malcolm, at that time? Outdoor tracks were the usual cinder tracks, if you're lucky, or grass tracks. Grass was sometimes probably downside better than cinder because it gave a firmer footing, but some of the cinder tracks were diabolical. Yeah. I remember 
in my first year of teaching uh, physical education, I did my PB, my personal best, on a horrible cinder track. And, you know, to put it in context, in later years when the synthetic surfaces came into being, I felt a bit cheated in a way because, as you know, the sort of basis of all horizontal jumps is speed. And uh, it was very difficult to generate any speed whatsoever on cinder tracks. So, um, uh, you know, that, that, that was the circumstance there as far as conditions were concerned. Indoor tracks didn't exist, <laughs> uh, except one at Cosford. Uh, and I think there was one over in East Anglia as well, wasn't there? But um, if you wanted to do any indoor training, uh, you use the usual gym, which was a restriction of space. You couldn't really do anything properly in there except maybe high jump. Otherwise, you just went outside, got cold and wet. Uh, yes, I remember it well. And how, how did you come into coaching? Um, it's going back a long way now. I came into coaching via teaching, really. I went to Loughborough University, as many did, uh, and got a degree in PE there. And I started teaching at a place called Marple Hall Grammar School up in Cheshire. You know, my teaching became my coaching as well. It's, you know, extracurricular stuff. And that's how it began, really. And I noticed uh, that your first big venture into coaching was in uh, uh, 1968. And in, of all places... Uh, Uganda. How did that come about? Yeah, yeah. Well, really, um, what I did before that, I became very interested in it. And uh, I helped uh, one of our former colleagues, the late Dave Kay. I helped him a lot demonstrate and so on, because I was still an active athlete there. And I went through all my coaching exams. It wasn't a lot of help uh, to get through coaching exams. And then in the school which had a track of its own, a, cinder, a very good cinder track down in the southwest of England in Bristol. Me and a colleague from, a, from an adjacent school ran the Gloucestershire Schools Championships. We ran Southwest Schools Championships and so on. So we were, we were, I was deep into it well before I went to Uganda. And I went to Uganda as a senior coach, um, having you know, gone as far as I could in the exams. And I think I did that age of 25. I like the idea of coaching and I like the idea of professional coaching. So I applied for a job in Uganda, having spoken about it at length with my dear wife, um, you know, with yeah. her uh, backing and blessing, if you like. We went to Uganda with, with two little kids. It was really an amazing, brilliant yeah. experience. What did you find when you got there? What sort of setup did they have there? There were four major teams. That was the prison service, that was the officers, not the inmates, police <laughs> service, the army, and the university. There was just one university there at the time. Athletics went in mainly at that, at that senior level, so there was a, a, a relatively easy circumstance. The, the, the one thing that was missing, they didn't have any competition, <laughs> except once a year in the national championships, and that was it. So... Um, there's a couple of guys in the UK who set up a national league. I, don't, I forget the names. Um, McNabb and Ward, was it? I, I think it was them. <laughs> um, yeah, McNabb and Ward, I, I, I'd observed, set up a national league in the UK. So I thought, well, it, this is ripe for development. So I set up a national league. We then had a, 
a situation where athletes could develop um, through a series of competitions. So we had the local competitions, we had the National League with, with these four teams part and parcel, two men per team. We could then pick a team to go to the East African Championships with all these brilliant East African athletes. And then um, ultimately there was Commonwealth Games and uh, Olympic Games. Yeah. Apart from that, there was nothing. <laughs> there were no tracks really. Any, any tracks were made of murram, if you're lucky, uh, which is a, sort of a red earth track, not unlike cinders. Um, the rest were just grass tracks. And I mean, national championships were run on the grass track with some brilliant performances. There was no, certainly no money. I remember in the, in the year leading up to the 72 Olympics in Munich, where John Akibua won a gold medal and broke the world record in 400 hurdles, there was no money, there was no tracks, uh, there was no kit. I mean, a, a pair of spikes cost a month's salary for the athletes. Um, I remember for one or two athletes, I, I wasn't on a, a big salary, but for one or two athletes, I had to put their hand in my own pocket to feed them properly. But the one important thing there, that there were brilliant physical athletes with the right mental attitude. And I think throughout all my coaching, I've learned that there are athletes with special brains who knew how to compete. Yeah, I had them, you know, six or seven months a year. Uh, all these specialist athletes. So we had yeah. we had our own academy, really. You made a very strong point there that that uh, you can't just look at coaching. Competition is what athletics is about. Mm-hmm. You, you can have you can have athletics without coaching. Yeah, but you don't you can't have athletics without competition. That's what it's all about. And once you'd established a, co- a competitive structure, you were really in business, weren't you? Oh yeah, yeah. That is the most brilliant thing that happened to me in coaching. I mean, once upon a time, you'd look at somebody go over a hurdle and they'd look very good, but you forgot that they couldn't run very fast. So you didn't become a good sprint hurdler if you can't run very fast. On top of that, if you can run fast and you're technically good over a hurdle, if you got the brain to be a good competitor, that was the killer, really. The other thing about Akibua, we were were talking a couple of weeks ago there about... uh, straight pattern in in 400 meter hurdles yeah what what was he using by that time in terms of his straight pattern all the way through he was very astute guy very intelligent guy in a way he went out in the, the olympic final with the thought that it could be either 13 strides between hurdles to hurdle five or hurdle six as it happened because of wind circumstances there he did 13s to six he then changed down. He was he was very he was right leg lead naturally, but you know he could learn things in about thirty seconds. So he was very good on his left leg as well. Uh, so he did right leg all the way to hurdle six, and then left leg to hurdle nine, and back on his right leg for fifteen strides between hurdles to hurdle ten. You know it, it's almost de rigueur nowadays to do thirteen strides all the way. And I think it won't be long before the women start doing that. Nowadays, they, they, you know, the Norwegian who broke the world record did 13s all the way. and But John uh, did 13s to 6, 14s to 9, 15s to 10, kept his leg turnover going, which is very, very important. 
that was what happened. Yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, I, I desperately trying to find uh, what uh, McLaughlin's uh, strike pattern was, trying to count them, actually. <laughs> I think yeah. it was, uh, she was actually, I think, doing 13, certainly up to five. Oh, certainly she does 13s, yeah. But how long for, I don't know. She's uh, she's absolutely magnificent. Yeah, yeah. Well, she's obviously a very, very quick learner. <laughs> when I got there, I was 28 years old, just, and I met a guy by the name of Amos Omolo, who was four years older than me. Uh, and he was a very good, he had a good history as a 400-meter runner. And I wasn't particularly well-versed in 400-meter running. So in a way, he took me under his wing. I just observed him training, really. And ultimately, we went to um, Mexico City in 1968. He made the Olympic final. And I think successively in the four rounds there, he ran 45 45-3, 45-2, uh, right through to the semi-final. And then in the final, he ran 47-6 from lane eight. Uh, you'll probably remember that the draws were absolutely random in those days. And you could be the quickest guy in the race and get lane eight, which he, which he did. But significantly, inside him, was a guy called Lee Evans, who you no doubt remember. Uh, he he act, really acted as pacemaker for Lee Evans in that. And in subsequent analysis, the guy ran 20.8. Amos yeah. ran 20.8 for the first 200 and died the inevitable death in the second 200. And that was, for me, in the, the first six months of my professional coaching career, I learned so much uh, about individuals and their competitive yeah. ability. I learned so much about, you know, technical things, the 400 and 400 hurdles, which has stood me in good stead ever since, really. It certainly did, looking at your CV. Um, when did you go back to England, uh, Malcolm? December 1972, after the Olympics. And I don't know if you're politically aware of things in uh, East Africa at that time, but um, there's a guy called Idi Amin took over who I met on a number of occasions. He was dead keen on athletics, Idi Amin was. He was head of the army when I got there. And he always came and watched, which again was 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 quite eye-opening. I did really learn so much and uh, we came back. It was getting a bit dodgy for kids' education. They were getting into primary school and so on. And uh, the political situation wasn't too, too happy. So uh, after four and a bit years, four and a half years, we came home. When did you take up as national coach? 74, was it? I did a year's teaching in Hull, uh, cross between a, a lion tamer and a childminder yeah. for sons and daughters of trollermen in Hull. Um, and then I applied for and got the, the job in, in Wales. And I started there January the 4th, 1974. To begin with, it was, again, a bit traumatic because I lived in the National Sports Centre in Cardiff for a while until we sorted out living accommodation and so on. And I sat there for six weeks and I wasn't contacted by anybody. <laughs> so eventually I contacted dear old Norman Cobb, who you might remember. Okay. I asked Norman, what am I supposed to be doing? Because I'd had no instructions. So I got on and um, contacted quite a few people in Wales who were involved in athletics and came across a couple of three good guys. And we decided to set up a coach education scheme and started that of our own volition. 
it was a bit difficult on the actual practical coaching side uh, because, first of all, it was about coaching coaches and teaching teachers. Uh, and that was, yeah. I discovered, supposed to be the main part of our job. Um, we were always told, if you wanted to coach athletes, you did that in your own time. Plus the fact that we had to buy our own cars and use our own cars for our jobs and so on. So it, it was a bit of an eye-opener after uh, my very positive experiences in, in East Africa. And it was a bit disappointing to to begin with. But the coach education side went went quite nicely. Eventually, I started working with athletes and then it you know eventually blossomed. <laughs> yeah. I had people telling me, coaches um, who, who were established there, that, you know, don't expect any sort of success, coaching success in Wales, because, they, you know, they do rugby here. We don't really have a chance of, of getting anywhere. So, you know, just, just be satisfied that you're in a job and uh, you're not going to have any good athletes. And, of course, that riled me. I got very upset about things like that. And I determined, yeah. you know, to uh, to do well in the next 20 years. We, uh, you know, we had a fair degree of success. I'd learned that the important thing in coaching life is the relationship you have with athletes. You know, if you thought of it just as a technical exercise about lead legs in, in hurdling and high jump and so on, then you're a goner, really. You're the man. I'm looking at it here as I speak. You know, Jason Gardner. Colin Jackson and um, Mark McCoy, and then Portsy. You really, over that period, uh, were the, one of the best sprint huddle coaches in the world, if not the best. Uh, I started with Nigel Walker. Don't forget Nigel Walker. No, 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 I forgot. <laughs> You're right. You're right. I started working with Nigel yeah. when he was a 15-year-old. Dare I say it, limited physical capacity. He was as stiff as a board, but he could run like hell. And how he managed to run 1350-something over the hurdles, I'm not quite sure. And then, of course, once Colin came on the scene, he sort of lost a bit of motivation and went to rugby. And God knows how many rugby caps he had for Wales, uh, but he played on the wing for Wales for quite a long time without a lot of background in rugby, really, at school. So he was amazing there. And then he, he's gone on to be you know, an administrator with uh, Sport England. And um, so, he, he, uh, again, Nigel was, was a super experience in my learning about sprint hurdles, which I then went on to... Uh, I mean, John Aki was, was a sprint hurdler to begin with, so I learned a bit there. But most of it I, I learned with Nigel, and then, um, you know, it, it went on from, from there. Yes, I went on very successfully. Now, what, when did... Lottery money kick in. But nineteen ninety-five was it? We were after more money yeah. for a long time, as you well know. And then in nineteen ninety-six we were in the Olympic Games in, in where I was head coach in uh, Atlanta. Yeah. And we had a we suddenly had a letter from a guy in Sport England. Uh, lottery funding will be available from you know, whenever you can get your plan in. What a story this is, Thomas. I sort of cancelled Christmas that year, 96, and did the first lottery funding plan. And I finished it by the middle of January, 1997. The only one guy in quicker than me was the canoe guy. And then it was a whole traumatic experience. Yeah. Now, the first thing that happened 
was, I think, about June 1997, a lot of financial wizards piled in on the UK, on British athletics or whatever it was called then. As a result of that, they spent a week with us. At the end of that week, they said, do you realise that you're trading <laughs> without any money? In other words, you're skint. So and we can't let you have any money from lottery funding if you're skint. We tried to find a way around that by, I think it was about August of that year, uh, we had started a new company called Performance Athlete Services to receive lottery money. Right. And lottery money was then, I remember September the 14th, 1997, the first check hit the mat. And so lottery funding began for British Athletics. And to this day, they've received about 120 million quids worth of, of funding, which is as good as um, two good midfielders in football, isn't it? Yes. Now, could you bring us from there to 2016 when you retired? Yeah. I went to work at the University of Bath, where I was offered a job to develop the athletics there. I was also still coaching British athletes, so I received some some money from the lottery funding. Max Jones took over from me as director of coaching. He wanted to set up regional coaching centres, so he asked me if I'd set up the one in Bath. So I, I think it was July, what would it be, 1998. Uh, the significant things that happened in Bath, UK Sport and the uh, University of Bath between them spent about 30, £35 million pounds on new facilities, the, not just athletics. There was already a, a really decent synthetic track there, and we got a six-lane indoor track, which was 140 metres long, jumps at one end, outstanding weight training yeah. facilities, uh, ultimately. And uh, we just got on with it. And I think in the period between 1998 and 2016, we produced over about 80 medalists, international medalists, that is, at under 20, under 23 and senior level, including Colin Jackson joined us there for a number of years. He became world champion again. Jason Gardner became world indoor champion, Olympic champion in the relay and so on. So it was a 20-year end, really, to a career which I thoroughly enjoyed at that stage in Bath. Lovely place to live and, you know, very stimulating place to work with very stimulating and intelligent young people. I was going to retire anyway. I was working particularly with Ailey Doyle, uh, the 400 metre hurdler then. She was one of the outstanding athletes. Yeah. Her husband, Brian, was down there as well with us. This is before they had the family recently. Uh, Brian was with us. So I took him through all his coaching exams and then mentored him through all that to the point where he then took over Ailey at the end of 2016, yeah. I stayed there and took a back seat then in 2017, but was there a lot of training sessions that Ailey had and, and mentoring Brian along the way, and he did a good job. Andrew Posse was there with us, and we'd gone through a, quite a traumatic situation with Andrew with all his injuries. He left and went up to Loughborough, yeah. um, but um, he, he got over his injuries at that point, thankfully, amazingly, and uh, went on to a decent career thereafter. How do you see the present landscape 
first internationally because one thing that has vanished has been in about 1990 was you know uh, an eastern european cabal of uh, of drug ingesters uh, we both worked through that period where do you see the world world athletics at the moment is it a developing sport uh, well it's certainly a developing sport i mean performances are improving there's some amazing stuff going on yeah in the future i think we'll just rely on these really outstanding young people like, like keely hodgkinson um, who who is absolutely brilliant um, but where are our field event athletes coming from? Look at the, you know, the legacy that uh, Steve yeah. Mackley and his mates left behind. And, uh, you know, my, one of my last duties was to go with the British team to Russia for a European Cup in 2016. And we couldn't even put out a 70-metre male javelin thrower, a 50-metre female javelin thrower. It's just heartbreaking for me. Now, I want to finish now, and hopefully a fairly high note, looking over the whole period, which uh, you're probably the most extensive experience of athletics probably of any modern coach. Can you say that that it's met your needs in terms of just sheer enjoyment? Because that's why we come into it. Yeah, yeah. Has that been a, a really enjoyable experience, Malcolm? I, I've been lucky because I've come in yeah. al- along the enjoyable route, um, not an academic, it's a job route. Yeah. Really, the big satisfaction for me is the number of good coaches I've met, brilliant athletes I've met, uh, many of whom are still my friends. That's great. I don't see them terribly often nowadays, but, um, you know, on Saturday, Jason Gardner called in to see us. Yesterday evening, Lawrence Clark gave me a call and, and, and asked me how things are. I speak to Colin Jackson every now and again. Andrew Posse calls in every now and again and so on. The friendship aspect of it all, I've really appreciated uh, and still, you know, cherish it, really. Yeah, you can't put a price on that. Nope. You cannot put a price on that. I'm exactly the same as you. I'm constantly speaking to the people I coached over the years. Yeah. So I'd like to end up there, Malcolm, thanking you very much indeed, because this has been absolutely excellent. My pleasure. Yeah. See you soon. Cheers, then.